calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. John Coates, the author of The Hour Between Dog and Wolf, says there's no such thing as a pure thought. All of our thoughts have an echo throughout our body, and he's here to talk about the biology of risk-taking. John, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So as a beginning introduction to your field of study, can you help us understand why it's important to study biology when we're thinking about investing and risk-taking? Well, I think it's important to understand what is driving our decision-making. Um, I think in economics and finance, in fact, I guess all the models we've been taught sort of proceed under the assumption that uh, financial risk-taking is a purely cognitive activity. So we've always looked at, at it in that light. But when we think, when we take in information, um, our brain sifts that information silently behind the scenes and tries to figure out what kind of movement will follow from it. And once it figures that out, it prepares our body. So it changes our heart rate, our breathing, uh, the state of our immune system. It shunts blood from one set of tissues to the other, maybe from the stomach to large muscle groups in the, the thighs and arms. Um, and all this is taking place very rapidly as we take in information. Importantly, um, that preparation for the body affects, then feeds back on the brain and can affect the way we think, the memories we recall. So there's a very rapid and, and inevitable loop between the brain and the body, which affects um, the decisions we make. And most importantly, um, it affects the state of our body, affects our risk preferences. So I'd say there's two assumptions that are um, widespread when you study economics or finance, and that is that risk-taking is a purely cognitive activity. And the second thing is that risk preferences are a stable trait, that when we reach adulthood, our risk preferences stabilize, just like much like our height and the color of our eyes. Um, both those assumptions are are not only wrong, but I think they're, they're dangerously wrong. So if we want to understand instability in the market, um, instability within firms across the business cycle, and you know pathologies in risk taking, such as why some traders end up taking too much risk and blowing up, or why occasionally trading desks and entire companies freeze up in risk aversion just when the market offers the most, you know, astonishing opportunities. If we want to understand those kinds of pathologies and risk-taking, I think we do have to look at the biology of shifting risk preferences. Have we developed a financial infrastructure based on a flawed assumption about human decision-making? And if that's the case, is it is it easier for humans to evolve to a flawed system, or should we think about trying to change the system? I guess these theories have had a certain amount of um, fallout. Um, and it shows up, for example, in the way traders are managed or asset managers are managed. Um, it shows up in the way their risk limits are assigned. Um, it shows up in comp schemes. So, yeah, we've had the, um, 
these theories haven't been without their implications in contributing to um, you know these waves of irrational exuberance and pessimism. So, for example, um, one of the in one series of studies we were doing was looking at the effects of anabolic mechanisms on um, increasing the risk taking of traders on a winning streak, and how it can encourage them to take more and more risk until eventually they're putting on trades in such large size with such worsening, ever worsening risk reward trade offs that when they blow up, they give back more money than they've made on the winning streak that fostered this sense of overconfidence. And unfortunately, given that we weren't fully aware, well, I mean, if you work on a trading floor, you observe this. Nonetheless, we weren't fully aware that these shifting risk preferences were taking place in a systematic and understandable way. And so unfortunately, in the, particularly in the banks before the credit, in the lead up to the credit crisis, traders that were doing extremely well were on a winning streak. Risk management was constantly upping their risk limits. So they were actually feeding the process rather than leading against it. So that's a case where knowing the physiology of shifting risk preferences would have allowed risk management to do something like A, not continually raise risk limits so that the trader can eventually blow up. Um, maybe what you also want to do to, to dampen this effect is take a trader that's on a winning streak and tell them to take, you know, a two or three mandatory vacation until their biology resets. You know, it's something that you see in, in a tennis match. You know, at the U.S. Open or at Wimbledon, you can see a no-name player beating Rafael Nadal or Federer or Djokovic. And this no-name player looks invincible on the day. And then the skies open up. The players have to go to the changing room, wait for this rain to finish. And when they come back out, this winning trader, their biology is reset, and they lose in straight sets after that. So, you know, you can't have a rain break that allows your biology to reset. There are mandatory vacation periods now for bankers where they're not allowed to call in during that period. If there's any mismarks in the books, they will come to light. That may actually, you know, inadvertently have the side effect of allowing biology to reset, although the timing of it probably isn't quite right. I think you want those mandatory vacations to occur, you know, midway through this winning streak. Just as equally, you know, when you go through a credit crisis or any kind of crisis in the market, it's generally when the markets offer the most unbelievable opportunities. But because of the, the stress response, chronic stress, has this very powerful effect in stimulating risk aversion, increasing risk aversion amongst people. So you get these trading desks and these companies, and it's not just financial companies, it's, you know, we're getting calls from every sector, energy, law, accounting, that when things go badly, they freeze up. No one will make a decision or take any risks, even though it's at the time in the market where the opportunities are just sitting there. I mean, during the credit crisis, there were cash and carry trades sitting there, you know, where you buy a bond, you sell a future, you lock up the finance, nothing can go wrong with it. It's a classic arbitrage, and they haven't really existed, these opportunities, since futures markets were introduced. But during the credit crisis, there were cash and carry trades sitting there, and the traders were looking at them going, not touching them, going, I wonder what can go wrong with this trade. So, I mean, that was just absolute, you know, ridiculous risk aversion, complete risk aversion. And... Unfortunately, it's during that time that middle managers walk around the, the trading floor saying, you know, there's going to be layoffs, we're going to rearrange the, all the trading desks and everything. And that increased uncertainty just feeds this risk aversion. So it's a, even though it may be hard to do when people are losing money, it's when management has to switch into support mode to get people back into the, in, into the, the mindset where they can take this risk. So yeah, and, and I mentioned comp schemes as well. I think, 
know, the annual bonus has had the effect of encouraging high variance trading. Up 100 million, get your 20 million payout. Down 100 million, don't give anything back. Up 100 million, get the 20 million. Down 100 million, don't give anything back. You know, everybody figured out, everybody has figured out that with that kind of comp scheme, you want to maximize the variance of your P&L, not, you don't want to maximize your sharp ratio. So we've been managing risk takers in a way that has amplified the shifts in risk preferences rather than dampening it. So I think once we understand these mechanisms, we're going to find it a lot easier to control them. Warren Buffett is famous for saying, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. So is our physiology making that a difficult piece of advice to follow? It certainly can. Um, you know, you might not be aware of these things when you're in the center of the distribution. Um, I think at that point it really looks like we might, you know, can be better described either with behavioral economics or even classical economics. But when you get in the tails, you know, just a runaway bull market where everyone's making money or the pit of a credit crisis, then it's easy for us to experience um, pressures that are really um, out of the ordinary. And then physiological mechanisms, if they're if, if they don't reset. See, it's okay to have these spikes in our various physiological systems, but we really need downtime. We need a recovery period where everything gets reset. Um, during events like a credit crisis where you might be chronically stressed 24 hours a day, seven days a week for you know a year at a time, and there is no recovery period, then we don't handle it very well. We're not really built to handle chronic stress. Um, so in those situations, yeah, the, you, you can make it very difficult to be risk-seeking when you're um, when you're chronically stressed, I mean, it's possible to do something about that. It, you can build up a resilience um, so that you know if you go through a period of chronic stress, you don't suffer these adverse consequences. Traders that have a, a higher degree of self-awareness around the combination of uh, brain-body response. Um, do those traders, in your mind, have uh, a competitive advantage to, to traders that don't? Um, well, I guess looking back on my time as a trader, uh, boy, I would have loved to have known this stuff. Um, I would have listened to some really valuable signals in a way that I maybe wasn't doing fully back then. Um, the extraordinary th- I mean, something very mysterious happens to us when we learn the science of what's going on inside us. Um, it's not just sort of an external observer. You are, when you learn, when you learn the science of what's going on inside you, you seem to be able to heighten the good things and dampen the bad things in a way I can't explain. Um, I know they found this with athletes that if they have an intervention that helps, say, speed up recovery after a match, and it might speed up recovery time by, say, 10%. If they describe why they're doing it, the effect this intervention is having on their body, and they show them the data, that can have as large an effect on speeding up recovery time as the intervention itself, which is very mysterious. So when I look back on when I was a trader, you know, my body was on a roller coaster ride. You know, when you're sitting there with a big position, you're up, you're down, volatility picks up, whatever. You know, your entire body's on a roller coaster. Just like watching an adventure movie, you're actually sitting on a roller coaster. It's the way we're built. We don't take in information like a computer does. We take in information, it becomes very physical. 
If it weren't that way, we wouldn't go to the movies. We wouldn't read books. They would be really boring. They would just be information, and we'd probably say, this is not true, you know. <laughs> but we're built to go on this roller coaster ride, and it can be, the signals that are generated can be very valuable. I know when I was doing derivative arbitrage, it's a very um, analytic part of the financial world, and I would find what I thought was an anomaly in the volatility surface would go over this trade, would show it to people in the group and in fixed income derivatives. So many people had advanced degrees in physics and engineering, whatever. So it was, you know, it was an incredible group to be discussing ideas with. And if I felt that there was in fact a trade opportunity here, I'd put the trade on, um, quite often a fairly big size. And then I'd go out into New York in the evening and, and forget about the trade. I had friends that were uncorrelated with the business. So it was good. I could go out and talk movies or something else. And then when the coffee came, I'd cast my mind back with satisfaction to this trade I'd put on that day. And uh, sometimes my stomach would just go, and it was usually a pretty good indication that there was something wrong in there. And there's, you know, there's this part of your brain, it's very silent, that is preparing your body for movement. And it's a very clever part of your brain, and it's very hard to deceive. You can tell yourself that everything is fine, but if it's not fine, that part of your brain really knows it. And, you know, this was a valuable signal. And I think if I had known that, that this was a signal, I would have listened to it a lot more. Um, in fact, I think one of the most fascinating areas in physiology right now is an area that they call interoception. Um, we have a sensory apparatus that looks outwards, our sight, our hearing, our smell. Um, that's exteroception. But we have a sec another set of um, sensory apparatus that's observing our inner world letting our brain know the state of our temperature, our blood pressure, things like that. Um, and these interoceptive signals, our gut feelings, are extremely important for making good decisions under situations of uncertainty. So it's, uh, it's an area of physiology that I think is going to become quite influential in the financial world, particularly as institutions like hedge funds um, take more of an interest in optimizing human performance rather than optimizing the algorithms. A lot of them uh, think that the algos have gone about as far as they can go because they're now trading with each other. And so they're looking at how they can optimize human performance. And so I think that's going to be the domain of physiology. So as a final question, um, you know, women in finance is a, is a burgeoning topic. And can you just briefly touch on uh, women in finance in your work? Sure. Um, well, our first paper, when it came out, it was in the middle of the credit crisis, and it was on testosterone and how it can feed this um, this winner effect so that um, when you're on a winning streak, your testosterone levels are rising. That's causing your risk preferences to shift towards greater risk-seeking. And I thought this might be the mechanism underlying irrational exuberance and why it is that traders on a winning streak so often blow up. Um, <clears throat> those traders, by the way, are almost always men. Um, and it's possible that women are not susceptible to this winning-induced expansion of risk-taking because they have about 10% of the testosterone as men. And in fact, research we've done since then has shown that they are, rel they are in fact, um, immune to the winner effect. We just haven't published it yet. So I, I have argued before that um, given this physiological basis to shifting risk preferences, we could actually help stabilize the markets if we had more women managing money. The question then becomes, 
well, how do you get more women involved? And the arguments there, I don't think, have been terribly enlightening. Um, there's been a strain of argument that's claimed that women are underrepresented in the financial world because they don't like taking risk to the same extent as men. I don't think that's true. In fact, we've um, completed a study in which we found that women and men have identical risk preferences. So there is no difference. in It's a bit of a myth. There is no difference in, in risk appetite between men and women. Another argument is that women don't like being on trading floors because it's a really macho environment. Um, and that it also doesn't allow work-life balance, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't believe that's the case because on a trading floor, the sales force is mixed in with the traders and the sales force is 50% women. So they're already on the trading floor. And if they didn't like it, they wouldn't be out there on the sales force. So I don't think that's the answer as well. I think it has to do more with the types of risk-taking men and women are more comfortable with. Um, because if you look at the trading floors at the banks and some of the hedge funds that are involved in, most of the trading is high frequency. You know, on the, in the banks, it's mostly, you know, flow trading, which is a form of high frequency. And it's very, you know, offer some pension fund, a hundred million or a billion, ten years, bid it for someone else. And you have to go back and forth and very quick. You have to close out your positions fast. Um, and on those sorts of trading floors, you find maybe 5% women. Um, but if you go to the trading floors of the asset managers, you find 50 to 60% women. And asset management is financial risk-taking. So it's not the case that women don't like financial risk-taking. They do. It's just a different... It's the holding period that I think is different. Guys seem more comfortable with high-frequency space, women with more longer holding periods. So I think... Um, I think the, the issue of um, getting a more even gender balance in the financial world is figuring out what type of risk taking is more appropriate or, or more congenial for each of the for each person. That's fascinating, John. Thank you so much for your time today, and uh, thank you for watching this episode of Take Fifteen. Copyright 2015 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.